Listeners, welcome back to the Business of Wellness. I am your host, Jacqueline London, and I am getting into everything, all things related to the World Health Organization's latest statement about aspartame. I have so many thoughts on this. If you have yet to listen to my episode on erythritol, um, I am going to link that for you guys in the episode notes for today. I was about to give you the episode number, but I realized I don't know that off the top of my head. I wish I did, but I don't. So today we're going to deep dive on all things related to aspartame. I am excited to get into it. I've gotten a bunch of questions from you guys on Instagram. If you're not already following me, please go ahead and do so at Jacqueline London RD. I posted something on this topic on threads, which I am newly a member, a user. I don't know. What do we say? A threader? How do we, how do we talk about this yet? I'm not sure, but I'm newly on this app. So definitely find me there. Uh, again, it's at Jacqueline London RD. Today, we're going to go into both the World Health Organization statement. Then I'm going to get into aspartame versus sugar versus sugar alcohols and other non-nutritive sweeteners. Again, I'm, some, some of this is going to be a little bit of a recap from the erythritol episode, but it's worth repeating in this context because I think it brings to light some very key and important new details. And then third, or we're, or our final talking point of the day, we're going to get into the bottom line on diet soda, because that's really the main source of aspartame in the American diet. How bad is it? What should you consume? What should consumers and industry know about what this World Health Organization statement means for you? We're going to talk about all of it. So before we get into it again, please make sure that you are following the Business of Wellness on Instagram. It's at Business of Wellness underscore pod. And of course, me at Jacqueline London RD, I post all of my updates really there. So you can't miss anything as long as you're following me. I am also at Jacqueline London RD across social platforms. And go ahead and rate this podcast five stars. Leave a review. Say hi. Let me know what you think. Do you like this episode? Do you like the topic? Do you like the format? I want to hear from you. All right. So without further ado, let's get into all things aspartame. It's our deep dive on the World Health Organization statement and what it means for consumers and for industry. All right, so let's start by analyzing the statement made by the World Health Organization. This was released six days ago when the statement was formally made. What I think is kind of crazy about it is it feels like we've been talking about this for a while, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like, first of all, this topic is always in and out of zeitgeist, of common communication among everyday humans. <laughs> I mean, literally yesterday, I ran into someone on the street who I haven't seen in a while, and she said... Um, and not, I'm not, I don't mean to put her on blast, but it does sort of feel like the forum to do so. But she said something to the effect of, um, just don't consume any of those diet beverages. This was completely out of nowhere. I mean, it was like, we, it was in the context of, um, just talking about things that were in the mood to eat. Uh, I was talking about literally donuts one minute before that. And then she made the statement that was like, just don't consume any of that diet shit. I think that was the direct quote. And I'm fascinated by that, right? Because first of all, I do this for a living. <laughs> I look at this research for a living. That's number one. Um, but people forget that all the time. I cannot even tell you. If I have health practitioners, dietitians out there listening to me right now, you know what I'm talking about. People forget this kind of thing all the time. They talk to you like they're talking to anybody else. And everyone eats. Therefore, everyone feels like they have an opinion or a qualified opinion to give nutrition advice. Um, this is just plain inaccurate and wrong. And it's actually very much against everything that I stand for based on the research and its application in practice. So let's get into the World Health Organization statement so that we can kind of debunk bit by bit and talk through exactly what they're saying. All right. So here is the statement about aspartame. 
Assessments of the health impacts of the non-sugar sweetener aspartame are released today by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, and the World Health Organization, WHO, and the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives. So many committees. That Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives is JECFA. Citing limited evidence, quote-unquote, for carcinogenicity in humans, IARC classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic to humans, IARC Group 2B, and JECFA reaffirmed the acceptable daily intake of 40 milligrams per, 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. All right, so I'm going to stop right there with that first statement and <laughs> remind you of something. This is something I wrote about in Dressing on the Side, and if you read it, then you'll know this hopefully already, and if you didn't, well... What are you waiting for? I mean, I must say, honestly, it's been since 2019. Um, so in dressing, I mentioned that the ADI per kilograms of body weight, and if you have the book, I'm sitting next to it right now because I just went back to this, is on page 187. And the reason why I'm, obs I'm obsessed with this part of my own work, which is sort of insane sounding to say out loud on a podcast, but the reason why I'm obsessed with this is because I personally lived it, and I can tell you that what shocked me so much is actually how well established the data is on the whole about non-nutritive sweeteners and their safety at, for, for general use. I mean, this is a pretty rigorous process of actually testing the safety. Now, do I think that I have, like, am I saying this like I have blind trust in the FDA? Absolutely not. I, I certainly don't have blind faith in any government institution at this point. <laughs> I think that's been pretty well established over the last few years. But I do think that they've done a pretty good job of saying what is safe and what has an acceptable daily intake, an ADI. I'm going to get into that actually right now. So basically, in Dressing on the Side, I mentioned that the ADI per kilogram of body weight is 50 milligrams per, kilo per kilogram in the United States. That's the acceptable daily intake in the U.S. metric, right? So this expert, Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives is speaking to the European ADI of 40 milligrams per kilogram. So that's why if you've seen things online or if you've seen, I've seen a couple of videos on social media that give a range, they're giving the range using 40 milligrams to 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Now, I like that personally, because if you listen to this podcast, you know how I love a range. <laughs> We, I think we all need a range. We can't all be kept to one single limiting number every single day of our lives. You know what I mean? So I'm here for a range always. I use a range with any client, anytime for a variety of different things. I, don't, I just don't think that one number is suitable for human beings. We live in the real world. We need a range. All right, let's go back to the statement. Aspartame is an artificial chemical sweetener widely used in various food and beverage products since the 1980s, including diet drinks, chewing gum, gelatin, ice cream, dairy products such as yogurt, breakfast cereal, toothpaste and medications, just cough drops, and chewable vitamins. Now, this is another quote. Cancer is one of the leading causes of death globally. Every year, one in six people die from cancer. Science is continuously expanding to assess the possible initiating or facilitating factors of cancer in the hope of reducing these numbers and the human toll, said Dr. Francesco Bracca, Branca, director of the Department of Nutrition and Food Safety at the World Health Organization. The assessments of aspartame have indicated that while safety is not a major concern at the doses which are commonly used, potential effects have been described that need to be investigated by more and better studies. So I agree and I disagree at the same time. Here's where I agree. We absolutely do need more research on this non-nutritive sweetener on aspartame in the same way that we need more research on anything that we're using in excess of what humans need to consume. 
whether that's something, quote, natural, like a sugar substitute, such as erythritol, which is found in nature, but man-made to be used for food processing and production purposes, or aspartame or otherwise, right? And I'm going to just say that again, just to reiterate the point. We need more research on anything that we know humans consume in excess of what we need. Now, I say that because that's as broad as it's meant to sound. We don't need to consume aspartame. We, but there are certain things that we, that we absolutely need to consume in certain amounts. When we're looking at a lot of these topics and a lot of what the regulation tells us versus what we know we actually need, we are consuming way more of so many different, both nutrients and just substances, substances like in this case, aspartame, then perhaps we need now whether or not that presents a safety risk or a hazard risk to us. That's to be determined based on the individual foods, nutrients, compounds that exist both in nature and that are man-made. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all or nothing safe or unsafe. It means that we need more research on all of those things because we need better ways to actually come up with real substantive public health messaging, things that actually help consumers know what to eat more of rather than scaring people into thinking about what they need to cut out or eat less. All right. The other thing is, why are we singling out this compound? <laughs> I mean, I like I hate saying this because I do feel a little bit like a conspiracy theorist when I say this, but I don't I don't really get it. I don't see to what end the World Health Organization thinks it's valuable to scare people into believing that there's something unique and worth calling out about this compound specifically that should make it more frightening than others that have been studied only in animals, just like aspartame. Other than my, I have, this is my personal theory, complete personal theory, folks. Just going to say that a million times over. It's my theory that maybe perhaps the World Health Organization is somehow linked to the sugar industry in some capacity, getting some kind of kickback, getting some sort of incentive for releasing statements like this, because I just don't see what the purpose is of human beings who are looking at the same research that I'm looking at and, and making statements like this in such an inflammatory way. Now, we're going to get into the rest of the statement in just a second. So you'll see that they they really, <laughs> they very much clarify what they mean. And to be honest, the, the bizarre nature of things like this, stories like this that make the news is that they're, lack, they're actually quite landing in the same place that I am about the safety and efficacy of, of, a, count, of a compound like aspartame. Um, they, they do actually wind up landing this plane in the right place. What I'm confused about is why the promotion, why the publicity, why the early leaked release of statements surrounding this topic when they are actually landing in a relatively reasonable place. So we'll table that for now. We'll get back to it in a sec. Obviously, this is just a theory. But if you look at all of the existing research out there and see how very little there actually is, which again is why I agree with that part of the statement, certainly we need more studies. It just doesn't mean that we have any reason to believe that in moderate amounts, this is something to be concerned about. And you also see if you're looking at this evidence, how weak it is as far as concern for carcinogenicity in human beings. And it's hard to see how you could come to this place where you've got, you know, leaked statements weeks ahead of your actual statement saying this is a possible carcinogen and with these inflammatory headlines. I'm just stumped by this. If anyone has thoughts on that, by the way, I'm obsessed with this topic. I just think it's endlessly fascinating. So I'd love to hear from you. I mean, obviously find me online. You can always um, 
shoot me a DM via my website. Also, it's JacquelineLungenRD.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear more theories on this and, and just kind of get to the bottom of, you know, where this comes from and, and have a conversation with like-minded, you know, people, people like me who are genuinely curious about how we get to this place. Like, how did we get the two bodies conducted independent but complementary reviews to assess the potential carcinogenic hazard and other health risks associated with aspartame consumption. This was the first time that IARC has evaluated aspartame and the third time for JECFA. After reviewing the available scientific literature, both evaluations noted limitations in the available evidence for cancer and other health effects. Ah, fascinating. IARC classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic to humans, group 2B, on the basis of limited evidence for cancer in humans, specifically for hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a type of liver cancer. There was also limited evidence for cancer in experimental animals and limited evidence to relate limited evidence related to the possible mechanisms for causing cancer. JECFA concluded that the data evaluated indicated no sufficient reason. Let me say that again. JECFA concluded that the data evaluated indicated no sufficient reason to change the previously established acceptable daily intake, the ADI, of 0 to 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight for aspartame. The committee therefore reaffirmed that it's safe for a person to consume within this limit per day. For example, with a can of diet soft drink containing 200 or 300 milligrams of aspartame, an adult weighing 70 kilograms would need to consume more than 9 to 14 cans per day to exceed the acceptable daily intake, assuming no other intake from other food sources. Now, we're going to come back to this in a sec. First, I just want to get through the rest of the statement, but I do want to make sure that we touch on IR classifications reflect the strength of scientific evidence as to whether an agent can cause cancer in humans, but they do not reflect the risk of developing cancer at a given exposure level. Ah! <laughs> what? I mean, isn't that the whole bag? Isn't that the whole game, people? You know what I mean? Like, let me say it again. Let me just read that one more time. IARC classifications reflect the strength of scientific evidence as to whether an agent can cause cancer in humans. Reflect the strength of the scientific evidence as to whether an agent can cause cancer in humans. But they do not reflect the risk of developing cancer at a given exposure level. What do you mean? What then why are we here? You know what I mean? Like that that's where I land on this. Like, why are we here? Then why are we talking about this? <laughs> If you're not going to reflect the actual level of exposure, then what is the purpose of this exercise? Okay. Sorry. I had to editorialize right there. Back to the statement. The IR hazard evaluation considers all types of exposures, i.e. dietary, occupational. The strength of the evidence classification in group 2B, that's where, where aspartame landed, group 2B, is the third highest level out of four levels. I would also call that the second to last level right? Which is, again, this is the craziness of this statement is that the wording itself is inflammatory. The strength of the evidence classification in group 2B is the third highest level out of four levels. Guys, it's only four levels, which means that 2B is the third highest. It's also the second to last. <laughs> and it is generally used either when there is limited but not convincing evidence for cancer in humans or convincing evidence for cancer in experimental animals, but not both. That's in the statement. I didn't make that up, but not both, but not both is in the actual statement, folks. In other words, that's their acknowledgement of the lack of evidence on this topic and that there's only been evidence linking aspartame to cancer in animal studies. Huge. Okay. That's huge. That's literally what every critic has been saying all along. They're admitting it themselves in this statement. 
I don't <laughs> disturbed. <laughs> By the way, you'd think that I didn't prepare for this. Like I've literally sat here. I read this out loud to myself minutes before starting to record this. And I still find myself in a state of shock. Like I just can't believe that in this world where we have so much to be afraid of sometimes, or at least it seems like there's so much to be afraid of that. Like this kind of thing is allowed to become a public health statement that's, that becomes news that's made every news cycle and scares people because it, it's really much more tame once you get into the actual, the actual statement than you're led to believe. All right, back to the statement. The findings of limited evidence of carcinogenicity in humans and animals and of limited mechanistic evidence on how carcinogenicity may occur underscore the need for more research to refine our understanding on whether consumption of aspartame poses a carcinogenic hazard, said Dr. Mary Schubauer Berrigan of the IARC Monographs Program. Oy. JECFA's risk assessment determined the probability of a specific type of harm, i.e. cancer, to occur under conditions and levels of exposure. It's not unusual for JECFA to factor IR classifications into its deliberations. Ay, pointless. JECFA also considered the evidence on cancer risk in animal and human studies and concluded that the evidence of an association between aspartame consumption and cancer in humans is not convincing, said Dr. Moez Sana, who's head of standards and scientific advice on food and nutrition unit. We need better studies with longer follow-up and repeated dietary questionnaires in existing cohorts. We need randomized controlled trials, including studies of mechanistic pathways relevant to insulin regulation, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes, particularly related to carcinogenicity. The IARC and JECFA evaluations of the impact of aspartame were based on scientific data collected from a range of sources, including peer-reviewed papers, government reports, and studies conducted for regulatory purposes. The studies have been reviewed by independent experts, independent experts, and both committees have taken steps to ensure the independence and reliability of their evaluations. IARC and WHO will continue to monitor new evidence and encourage independent research groups to develop further studies on the potential association between aspartame exposure and consumer health effects. Great. Okay. Three things. <laughs> Three things I want to say about the rest of the statement there um, and the statement overall. Number one is the lack of exposure level used to evaluate the evidence. I just think like that's the critical component. I mean, because just think about it. All day, every day, we are exposed to things elements, things that occur naturally in the world and things that <laughs> things that maybe are man-made that come at us that we don't really know the long-term effects of, of our exposure to those things. But we have the ability to self-regulate as human beings. We're not lab rats, right? So we have the ability to say, oh God, you know, it really smells like I don't know, toxic chemicals from this construction site that I'm near, perhaps I'm going to move away from it. Now, as an occupational hazard, I understand fully that that's that the statement I just made is really from a place of privilege, right? Like there's lots of people out there that, that do not have access or the ability to say, I'm going to quit my job today because I'm afraid of my risk level um, of exposure. But I will say that something that has always struck me through the years and as a dietitian, is the actual risk level when you are exposed to something that is considered carcinogenic via your respiratory tract versus your digestive tract. I've often said, and you've probably heard it here on this podcast, and this is, again, this is a vast generalization, but it's a really important generalization. People who are exposed to things in nature and via their occupation um, and not just in nature, right? Like in their work setting, via their occupation. If you work in a factory, there is a lot of ways that you can be exposed to carcinogenic compounds. It is a higher likelihood in 
most cases of of an increased risk of developing lifestyle related cancers when you are exposed through the respiratory tract versus something that you consume because a it's just going to be in smaller amounts when you're when you're consuming something it just automatically is it's also in a different format it's a solid or liquid form versus a gas form um so it's just kind of like a getting back to the basics of science like you don't need a master's degree to understand that those components of things it's really about you know how the the pure fundamentals of chemistry how and in what form and at what exposure level are you actually getting a, a consistent amount of exposure to a carcinogenic compound and what is the medium what is the actual form in which your exposure is taking place those are huge factors that play an enormous role in all of this when you look at the evidence across the board. For example, the acceptable daily intake, the ADI of aspartame in the United States is 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. In the EU, it's slightly lower, we discussed this, 40 milligrams per kilogram. How does that translate as per the American Cancer Society? To put the US ADI for aspartame in perspective, this would be 3,750 milligrams per day for an adult weighing 75 kilograms. That's about 165 pounds. That's far more than most adults take in daily. A can of diet soda usually contains about 180 milligrams of aspartame in the United States. So a typical adult would have to drink about 21 cans of diet soda a day to go over the recommended level. And even that would have to be done consistently over the course of time in order to reach the amount that puts you at risk for chronic disease. That's critical, first of all, by my math from using United States data, right? Like using what we know about the 12 ounce cans of soda in the US, the amount of aspartame that's in there, the amount that you would have to drink based on our ADI of 50 milligrams per kilogram. That's a huge deal, you guys. <laughs> that's 21 cans. I mean, who has time? Like that, that's, that's what I always come back to. And I come back to this in so many ways. You've probably heard me say this before in different capacities. Like who actually has time to drink 21 cans of soda a day? <laughs> Whether it's diet or or it's regular cola or it's it's water, I can't get people to drink twenty one cups of water a day. Nor would I necessarily encourage that, right? Because that you know your water needs are going to be different depending on who you are. So that's why I I just find statements like this to be so confusing and perplexing to me. I, I just it seems like why are we wasting resources, time, and and people's hard earned, you know degrees in their respective fields to spend time looking at these things that seem to have not listen i get it if if we had all of the money in the world and we had all of the time in the world then dedicating resources to researching aspartame and risk of carcinogenicity in human beings i think would be really valuable but if we just consider the reality of people's everyday lives how likely is it that you're you know chomping on your sugar-free gum and chugging Diet Coke all day to an extent, to a point that this puts you at such a high risk. Now, I get it. Some people are thinking to themselves, well, gee, I'm doing that. Listen, I'm doing that right now. I, <laughs> I'm looking at my sugar-free gum, waiting to stop recording to start chewing. Okay. I, I'm with you. Like, I get it. I get why it seems like a lot, but just think about the reality. I mean, honestly, give yourself the gift of trying this as an exercise. Just count how many sticks of gum you're having a day, how many actual 
full cans of diet soda do you really get through in a day? You only get 24 hours and presumably a chunk of those you're going to be asleep, right? And another chunk of those you're going to be avoiding that soda just because you're not going to want to have that caffeine too close to bedtime. Just realistically speaking, this is what I've seen in both the research and practice is that it just seems like a really challenging thing to actually do to put yourself at consistently high risk. Okay. Number two thing I hate about this statement, obsessing over aspartame makes me wonder if anyone on any of these committees has ever evaluated research on dietary patterns on the whole. Because I, what again, what I come back to is that when we look at cancer risk in human beings, there is, there's quite a bit of observational data out there that links diets high in saturated fat, added sugar, and sodium to increased risk of cancer. Now, does that mean that if you have a diet that's higher in those nutrients, is does that put you at greater risk? No. I mean, it's not a it's not a one size fits all. It's not a be all end all. It's not a definitive thing. That's why it's observational research, right? It's looking at dietary patterns. It's not looking at causality, cause and effect relationship. It's such a nuanced thing and it's so hard to sometimes put into words and really convey how upsetting <laughs> This is, although I think I'm probably doing a decent job of showing you how upset I am about things like this. But I think about, and if you guys follow me online, then you've seen probably the the video that I did looking at the glucose goddess, who is a biochemist. I'm sure she's great in her field. But like when you're just looking at the science, when you're just looking at the research, you forget that you need to understand what this looks like in practice in order to make recommendations for the public. And when I look at public health recommendations, I often feel the same way, which is shocking. I shouldn't feel that way when looking at public health recommendations, right? I mean, what shocks me is that rather than talk about what it might look like to have a dietary pattern that is anti-cancer, right? Like a, a dietary pattern that's pro-longevity and anti-cancer, what would that look like? <laughs> and to me, you know, looking at all of the research based on my field, I'm just going to answer that question. It looks like a diet that's filled with veggies and fruit, 100% whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes, dairy, and more limited amounts of red and processed meat um that not none not not zero but more much more limited especially on the processed meat front um when it comes to risk of cancer and it also means including more foods more lean protein like seafood like eggs like um like plant-based protein sources including tofu um and it really means including a an overall health promoting pattern of eating that includes all of these foods in everyday meals and snacks in ways that work for your lifestyle. And it also means having a, a weight that supports your overall health goals, your longevity goals. Now, I'm not going to give you numbers. I'm not going to talk about BMI because I know it's very controversial and I have very mixed feelings about it, even though I think it's one metric, right? BMI is one metric by which we understand overall health risk assessment. So, it's important to remember that weight is not a be-all end-all, but weight does play a role in cancer risk. I mean, we certainly know that from the research. Dietary patterns play a role in cancer based on the research, but the idea that one compound should play such a significant role in our own personal cancer risk, it's also ignoring family history. It's ignoring genetic factors. It's ignoring lifestyle factors. Like I've mentioned before, that occupational risk. We have no idea. <laughs> I mean, when I say we have no idea, I mean... A large governing body to tell you or to scare you may or may not be relevant for you. So everything has to be taken with this proverbial grain of salt or aspartame, if you prefer. All right. The third thing, 
And this is arguably the most important thing because of something I just mentioned, which is why is no one talking about what aspartame is used as a substitution for, which is sugar. (laughs) We know that diets high in excess amounts of added sugar are associated with increased risk of cancer. Again, not a be-all end-all that if you have a little extra sweets today that you're going to have cancer one day. That's not what I'm saying. It's about patterns. I'm looking at patterns. Diets high in added sugar are associated with an increased risk of lifestyle-related cancers. Okay. And that's not just cancer. It's also other chronic diseases. I'm sure as a listener of this podcast, you probably know this already, right? So why is no one talking about this? Why in the context of this whole conversation, why are we not talking about why we're using aspartame in the first place? Right? I mean, and where are those studies? Which, of course, those are absent because what what do we need those studies for? If we had any sense of how to eat in a day, of how to put together meals, snacks, and have a beverage pattern that supported our overall health goals... What do we even need those studies for? We know that it's a net benefit to reduce added sugars in our dietary patterns overall. We know that non-nutritive sweeteners, when consumed in moderate amounts, not in excess of what we need, not at 21 cans of soda a day, God knows who's out there that has time to drink 21 cans of soda a day. But if you do, please call me. I'd like to hear from you. I really do. I'd I'd love to know how you have that kind of time. then I just don't see, I just don't see it. Like, why are we not talking about why we're using aspartame in the first place? Because that overall, like how has that decreased our risk of lifestyle related cancers? Now you can make an argument that it maybe hasn't significantly because we've found ways to overcompensate our intake of excess added sugars from other sources. There's also a bunch of people out there that are still afraid of diet beverages because they think that there is an increased risk of health hazard, an increased risk of cancer by consuming the aspartame found in diet soda, just like the woman that I ran into on the street yesterday who tried to tell me not to drink diet soda for God knows what reason. I can't. Anyway, food for thought on that one. Okay, I want to get into aspartame versus sugar versus other quote unquote natural non-nutritive sweeteners. And I talk a little bit about this in the erythritol episode, but it's worth repeating in this context because I think it really adds quite a bit of color and brings this whole topic and this entire area of both research and regulation, like the regulatory application of things to life. So when we find sugar alcohols in nature, the FDA doesn't consider these compounds, artificial sweeteners. That's huge. That's a very important point specifically to how we treat artificial sweeteners or non and non-nutritive sweeteners on the whole in the United States. So when you see, you know, a sugar alcohol, like let's use erythritol as the example used in food products, it shows up as a, a zero sugar alternative, zero calorie sweetener. That's different from a product sweetened with Splenda or aspartame, which can use words like sugar-free and diet. Now, does this make sense to the average consumer? I personally don't think so. (laughs) This is where I would say, yes, you do. Yes, you do need a master's degree to figure this shit out (laughs) because it's that confusing. But it might seem extremely nitpicky. And I, I just, I think it's extremely important though, to just talk about how this plays out for a second in our entire food processing and production, um, area and how it, and how it plays out in this 
area of the food sector. The FDA allows zero calorie and zero sugar labeling because the actual calorie content of something like erythritol is nominal. It's about 0.24 calories per gram versus sugar, which is four calories per gram. So rounding that number down to zero is within the acceptable range for a food product labeling compliance, right? To say zero sugar on a packaged food product. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Now, in the past 15 to 20 years or so, our media, our culture, our random women that we run into on the street have become obsessed with wellness while shunning the idea of weight loss diets, weight loss practices. And simultaneously, because of the safety statements from companies that manufacture non-nutritive sweeteners versus companies that manufacture sugar alcohols, the most common, again, aspartame, Splenda, acesulfame, potassium in the US, the increase in food products that ascribe to the lower sugar, paleo, biohack, keto-friendly, wellness warrior lifestyle appear to be everywhere, right? We see these products everywhere. I think it's worth calling out that actually the sources of aspartame in at least in the American diet, we're still using them. We're still absolutely using this substance. But I'm curious to know how this has shifted over the last 5, 10, 15 years. How much are we really using aspartame versus other sources of non-nutritive sweeteners? Particularly these ones that we consider to be quote unquote safer, but just wait for it. Are they really? I think it's worth calling out this, you know, the products that provide sugar alcohols for this reason. We just don't know how many people might be affected by the more seemingly, seemingly, okay, and this is opinion, of course, but seemingly limitless ability to consume sweeteners like erythritol versus aspartame, which Americans have been living in fear over since the 80s. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is something that comes up so often with clients. It comes up so often in practice. Oh, I can't have that. It's like poison. It's cyanide, right? And I, I come back to my example of the woman that I ran into on the street yesterday. <laughs> this poor woman. <laughs> but just think about it. Like we have villainized aspartame and lionized things like erythritol. When actually we have way more research about the acceptable daily intake of aspartame. And we have nothing that tells us when to stop about erythritol and other sugar alcohol. We simply don't know how many people might be affected by that seemingly limitless ability to consume erythritol and other sugar alcohols in lots of different foods. Meanwhile, Diet Coke has been battling an image problem since the 90s when the safety statements about use of high-intensity sweeteners was first evaluated and written. But let's just keep in mind my main point here, which is that there is an acceptable daily limit for aspartame in the US that's 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. There is not one for sugar alcohols. There is not one for sugar alcohols, meaning that if we consider something, quote, natural, we have not studied it whatsoever. That is until the last couple of months when that, that study was published about questioning the safety of erythritol. And that's why I always come back to this. A, it's always worth questioning the amount of evidence that's available on any given compound, substance, thing that we've heard about in the news, right? It's always worth questioning how much evidence actually is there and what are we comparing it against? And also, it's really worth questioning, you know, isn't, isn't it better to have a safety limit for a compound versus none at all? 
right? Because then we're basically giving people carte blanche to have as much as they like, whereas at least we have a limitation around aspartame. I would argue we've gone too far in the messaging of this limit around aspartame, and now we've scared the shit out of people to the point where people actually believe. I've seen this so many times, you guys, I can't even count, where people actually believe that it is a better choice to have a to have more sweetened beverages than it is to have a diet beverage. I would strongly disagree with that. There might be other dietitians that disagree with me on this because again, it's all going to be about context and the ways in which you're consuming these products in your personal everyday lifestyle and dietary pattern of eating. But that's my, that's been my experience is that people are so afraid in the opposite direction that it's really confused the consumer landscape. The beauty of a gross statement from the FDA, a generally recognized, generally recognized as safe statement from the FDA, from my perspective as a dietitian, products that have artificial ingredients, quote unquote, can often be less expensive. The ingredients cost less. So the end user pays less. And actually having an amount that's at least listed on a website somewhere is better and more informative than having no amount or recommendation at all. That's my take on this. And it's why my personal takeaway is this for you. Read food labels, include non-nutritive sweeteners and or sugar in the amounts that you know you can personally tolerate and that work for you. And focus on whole food ingredients like prioritizing real dessert instead of like sad keto cookies. And ultimately remember that there's going to be always universally some sort of catch, be it scientific or by nature of FDA's impact on food product marketing in the US, when something appears to be quote unquote free. There is just no such thing as a free lunch, you guys. I mean, I've said it so many times, I feel like a broken record, but if you're new here, then it's certainly worth repeating. Hi, I'm Jackie. There's no such thing as a free lunch, <laughs> especially in nutrition, especially when it comes to the overall landscape and picture of research, right? So I can say this about aspartame. I can say this now a little bit more about erythritol, though it's relatively new to have that kind of landmark study where we saw that there may be some negative implications, even though the study was deeply flawed. I just, I wouldn't be surprised that there might be at very high amounts because we've allowed that to kind of run free in our food supply for years now without realizing the implication of all of the marketing swirling around you know, not using words like diet and sugar-free because of their implication, because they might be triggering to some people. I don't know. But instead, we're using all of these other words that mean we don't know what the hell we're putting in our bodies. We don't know their actual safety and efficacy, and we're not really being transparent with consumers. So that's my little pro tip for industry is aim for transparency above all else, always, because the consumer is more informed than ever. And just by nature of, I mean, like, guys, if you just look... Right now, if you just type in the word aspartame on Instagram and just look at the amount of coverage that this has gotten just on social media, not, not even on traditional media, just on social, it's shocking because you see how many people have different opinions, are looking at the evidence, but also a lot of people like me out there who are really looking at the evidence and saying, what the hell are we talking about? Why are we talking about this? <laughs> right? So that's my point is that consumers are, are apt to be more informed than ever. So if you work in industry, your number one goal needs to be transparency. If you don't know that by now, I don't even know what to say, right? Because consumers know this shit. They are aware of the fact that they are being marketed to all the time especially Gen Z consumers. So that's really worth thinking about, talking about with your with your teams, taking that back to your R&D and really understanding, you know, getting beyond the regulatory components of things and what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, forget it because consumers are confused. So just like 
be as clear as possible with the understanding that people know that food companies are very often full of shit, even when they're telling the truth. I hope that makes sense. I, I think it does. If you, if you work in industry, you'll know what I mean. All right. Let's get to the bottom line here, shall we? Which is how bad is it to actually drink diet soda? The question I'm asked all the time, worth going back to this answer today. As long as you're sticking to a one, two, three, I don't know. <laughs> as long as you're not sticking to 21 cans <laughs> of diet soda per day, then it's absolutely not so bad. It's my opinion that really everything, anything and everything, especially things that go through your GI tract are absolutely okay in moderation and diet beverages are certainly no different. Now that said, it tends to be a heated debate for a bunch of different reasons. We need to consider all of the facts though about why this is a heated debate. And I'm personally convinced more than ever that it's perhaps a heated debate for more sinister reasons. I, I mean, I'm starting to really question that because it does seem to me that there are lobbyists at play involved in this conversation. When it comes to safety, US FDA recognizes all non-nutritive sweeteners on the market today as generally recognized as safe, GRAS, which means that after extensive evaluation of scientific research, they've established standards for sweeteners on and determined what's safe for most Americans to consume. Some people with like genetic inborn metabolism errors can't have aspartame, that's a different story, right? Additionally, the National Cancer Institute also supports that there is no current association between non-nutritive sweeteners and risk of cancer in humans. When it comes to your weight, research has been a little bit murkier, but there's some reasons for that. What scientists have questioned in recent years is whether or not increased energy intake, aka eating more calories, which leads to packing on pounds eventually over time, can be attributed to diet beverages. Why? When we drink diet substitutes, diet sugar substitutes found in diet beverages, research has demonstrated that there's potentially the intake of sweet foods might increase due to the fact that our reward system isn't activated after consumption of saccharin and sucralose, artificial sweeteners, as compared to glucose and sucrose, which is sugar. But <laughs> there's some issues with that. Additionally, research has found that there may be a dose-response relationship between artificially sweetened beverages, beverage intake and BMI, as well as a long as long-term weight gain, as in the more you drink, the more you gain. But a lot of that research is just weak sauce, you guys. It's just not well substantiated. It's not well powered. There's no there's no demonstrable cause and effect. There's no causality established. The studies have been poorly designed because confounders haven't been accurately accounted for. And without regulating, relegating people like rats to labs, it's so hard to tell what else is going on in someone's life that preempts everyday food decisions, right? I mean, we've all been there. You order a double cheeseburger and a diet soda, like that happens all the time. But if that's happening at scale over time, I mean, it's just so hard to say when we're looking at observational data of that type. But at the same time, how are we going to stick humans into a lab and, and do a study that is a randomized control trial that actually evaluates for breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, and all the beverages in between in human beings, it's just not really possible or realistic, not for a long-term period of time, nor would we want to torture human beings like that. <laughs> Let's just be reasonable. Here's what we do know, okay? <laughs> Calories from added sugar, especially added sugars found in beverages, especially, especially the calories found from added sugar in beverages, because this is the number one source of added sugar in the American diet, World Health Organization. Please take note, the number one source of added sugar in the American diet is beverages. Regular soda, juice, energy drinks, sugary coffee beverages. These are linked. 
with a whole host of chronic disease risk, of increased risk of chronic disease. We know this. This has been very well established. It's why chronic disease risk continues to rise year over year is because we have so many limitations around nutrition communication, around lifestyle-related habits that decrease risk of chronic disease. If all we do is spend time scaring people about what to avoid, we're not talking about what to actually consume and how to do it in a way that meets people's everyday real needs and lifestyles. That's my main problem with this. That's why I have uh, such a gripe with the entire aspartame conversation. And my bottom line, guys, is that I hate the word moderation. I've really, I've written so much about it because I just think it can be so vague. But I think we really need to get very serious about what moderation means for us on a personal level. As long as your definition of moderation means anything under 20 cans of diet soda per day when it comes to aspartame, I feel confident that you're in good shape, but I can't know that for sure without knowing the rest of what's in your dietary pattern, what your lifestyle looks like, what you do for a living, who you are, what your genetic risk factors might be, what your past diet and past medical history looks like. I can't actually assess that without knowing that about you. Keep that in mind when you start to define what moderation means for you. Because with all of this in mind and with all of the research and with all of the statements that have been released, the number one thing I come back to is that A, moderation is personally defined. And B, there's a whole host of factors that goes into what overall health and well-being actually looks like and feels like and what it truly means for you. And everyone's definition is actually quite different. So trying to figure out what it really means for you what health span looks like for you, because I think that's such a better word than lifespan, right? It's not just about the years that you live. It's about how fulfilling and wonderful those years actually are. Your health span is a significant portion of how you want to live and who you want to be in 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. So thinking about the dietary choices, the lifestyle choices that are meaningful to you, what brings you joy, but also what gives you nourishment, finding that balance for you is ultimately what's most important and what decreases risk of chronic disease overall. This podcast is about inclusivity. So if you don't like that, you're in the wrong place. But I have a feeling if you're here, if you made it this far, you do like that. All right. That's it for now. I hope this clarifies this extremely confusing and honestly, just kind of (laughs) silly and overblown topic. We'll get back to regularly scheduled interviews programming next week, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Let me know what you think by leaving a five-star rating, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will catch you next week on The Business of Wellness. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide, it may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.